This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today is our Personal Finance for Musicians episode and it features a financial expert and strategist, Michael Mercurio. We recorded this event live. We had a crowd at the Drum Pad here in Nashville at Drum Paradise. Big shout out and thanks to John Hall as well as Harry McCarthy for making that space available for us. There are a lot of common sense ideas that are discussed throughout this episode, but there are also some more heavier, in-depth subjects about finances that are discussed. Our special guest that day was Michael Mercurio, like I said. Michael is Vice President and Financial Advisor for Stephen & Associates Financial Planning with offices on Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee, and in West Palm Beach, Florida. Michael works with clients in almost all financial stages of life throughout the country to create strategies that protect and maximize assets, retirement income, estate, and financial opportunities. Michael has helped numerous clients grow and protect their wealth throughout his years as a financial strategist. So as you'll find out by listening to this episode, after John Hall introduced me to Michael, Michael suggested that he and I get together, we go over my personal finances, and create a plan for financial security. It has been an amazing experience. I have learned so much, and well after this episode airs... I will continue to seek his counsel. If you are at all interested in speaking with Michael, please know that he can work with you remotely. You don't have to live in Nashville to get his help. His contact information is in the show notes. As we've announced, in the month of October, we had a contest. If you left a comment on our iTunes, copied and pasted that comment onto our Facebook page, you will be entered into a raffle to win a 16-inch Sabian symbol from their brand new line. We are going to announce that winner, and we'll post it on our social media platforms. And we're very thankful for all of those who participated in this and continued support. Again, as we've mentioned many times, If you can leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, even on YouTube or any other place, it really helps us grow. And if you want to support what Zach and I are doing, this is one of the best ways that you can do that. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. If you use the hashtag WorkingDrummer, we'll include you on Instagram and our stories. If you want to support what Zach and I are doing here at the Working Drummer Podcast, there's a couple ways that you can do that. On the homepage of our website, workingdrummer.net, you can find a button for PayPal. There's also a button that is a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is an easy and convenient way to support the podcast on a regular basis. Donations start at a dollar and you have access to the bonus material that we're providing on a monthly basis from past guests. As always, any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. (laughs) 
So here you go, our personal finance episode featuring our guest, Michael Mercurio. When I reached out to Michael to talk and to set up a time for an interview, he said, well, let's do this. Why don't you come to my office, bring your personal stuff, your financial stuff with you, that you and your wife have, and we'll go through it and I'll, we'll treat you like a client. And I'm like, are you sure? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it'll be great. It'll be easy. I'll send you these questions, this paperwork to fill out. It'll give me an idea of what you're doing. And uh, it's been an amazing experience. I cannot stress to you enough how much it's affected my thinking, my wife's thinking, and she hasn't even met Michael yet. And just it's given me a lot of hope. And uh, I just I want to share this information. I'm more excited. It's a great. It was a great idea to get this going. So I'm super excited. And here's just a couple quick takeaways from that experience so far. Um, I realized first and format, foremost that when Michael sent this questionnaire and all these things to fill out, he's like, "Oh, it'll be easy." It wasn't easy. It was embarrassingly difficult to give him the information that he asked for. Like, how much life insurance do you have? Um, Where is your money going? And why is it going to this place and not this place? And nothing, I wasn't being interrogated. I was being asked very simple adult questions that I should have known. And I didn't know them. And we'll get into more of the things that I've learned from this process. But the other thing, and and then we'll 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 pick up from here and listen to the expert, is after my meetings with Michael. Even after the first one, I realize I have a task before me to get my finances in order so I can take care of my family. For anyone that doesn't know, I have two teenage sons, and and so my responsibilities are obviously more than just myself. I'm going to be able to do this. Michael's given me a plan and some things for me to consider, even as I've been working as a a full-time musician for 20 years. And I'm like, wow, I can be a self-employed person with fluctuating income and still take care of the people that I need to take care of, including myself. So it's, I'm just super excited about it. And I'm thrilled, man. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. that. That's, that makes my heart sing. Cause that's, that's what I want to accomplish for people. So that's, yeah. I can't, I, I can't imagine something being said better. Awesome. And ladies and gentlemen, Michael Mercurio, let's give it up for him. Thank you. We'll we'll fly in some like big audience sound. It'll be like uh, Kiss Alive too, <laughs> you know. Stadium applause. I like it. Yeah, it works. <laughs> Thanks, Ernie, for getting that Kiss Alive too joke. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have questions for you, but do you have anything that you want to say? Um, no, I'm. Uh, you're the driver. I'm just along for the ride, man. I'll be glad to answer whatever I can, and 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 I'll give advice that I can give, and and and. We'll just go from there, go where it goes. Gotcha. So one of the things that I wanted to start off with is uh, myths and misconceptions about personal finance. Um, How much to save, where to save, investment long-term or short-term. So if you have an idea of some common misconceptions, 
about personal finances. Like, oh yeah, I've got it under control. I'm doing this, so I've heard that this is the way to do it. This is the way to save money. This is the way to prepare for retirement. That you're like, okay, this is out there and it's wrong. <clears throat> okay. Well, some some myths and misconceptions. Uh, <laughs> myths is first and foremost how much to save. Or more than that, that you need to save. Most people I find don't save. There's 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 a lack of appropriate saving in people's financial world. They think that eventually I'm gonna have some time, eventually I'll make the income that I can start saving. Well, as income increases, so does spending. It it goes hand in hand. I have clients that make low income per year and I have clients that make a whole lot of income per year and what's funny is they all suffer the exact same problems. It really doesn't change because as money increases, so do expenditures. You get used to a different lifestyle. You increase, so that really doesn't happen. Uh, So the myth that money solves problems is a big one. Money does not solve a problem. Money is a tool, and people need to remember that it is nothing but a tool. It is not the answer. Another myth, I guess you could say, it's not really a myth. It's just People have been told, I'm sure everybody has heard, you should save at least 10% of your income. That's been the most common thing touted for years and years. Traditional financial planning, traditional planning has taught people that you should save at least 10% of your income. Well, that's that's good. You should. Um, uh, we've been telling people it should be at least 15% per year, not 10. And just recently, uh, financial planning uh, establishments have, have come out and said 10% is not enough. We found out that it wasn't enough. You need to save 15. So, yeah, you do. Uh, it's There's a reason for that. There you're going to be hit by a lot of eroding factors in life that most people don't even think of. It's, it's really not what you see that hurts you in life. It's what you don't see. You can't, nobody can predict the future. And I mean, you, you, have, to, you have to plan for a future you can't even imagine. I mean, did anybody imagine that they're going to be right where they are right now? Almost nobody did. And sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse, but you, you don't know. So if, you, if you're at least planning ahead and saving money and, and, and saving appropriately to deal with um, these, these eroding factors, then it helps keep up with them. Um, inflation is a, is a great example. Inflation is one of the largest eroding factors that, that attack people's finances over time. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that people typically don't think of. And when I see people's financial plans that they've put together elsewhere and we review that, it's almost never taken into consideration. I'm sure some people do, but I have not seen it much. Inflation is huge. Inflation has changed over time. Uh, I mean, in 19... Well, I'll start with this. We use, on average, 2% for inflation. And inflation is... If, is of course your dollar is worth X today. Well, next year it's worth two percent less, and next year it's worth it's the same dollar, but it spends like two percent less each year. Um, and what's funny is that the government has been trying to keep it at around two percent. But the way they do that is they have a basket of goods that they've been milk, eggs, certain things like that that they put in this basket and say, okay, we're going to judge by value of these items as they go up how much the the value of the dollar is actually worth. What happened is when inflation started getting out of control because not all items inflate the same, they don't all go the same route, um, they started changing the items in the basket just to try and keep it at 2%. They're like, oh, well, milk, we can't use that anymore. So they took milk out of the basket and they put something else in it. Oh, it's still 2%. Well, no, it's not. In uh, in 1980, inflation was 13.5%. That's substantial. That's really substantial. 
<laughs> so it's it's things that people have to keep up with. Uh, I actually I brought my computer to do a just to kind of show you guys a quick calculation, and I can describe it too since we're on audio. Yeah, I wanted to have this. One of the things we talked about in our meeting was when you save and you're planning for retirement and you're looking at these projections that he has really nicely laid out over time and you're like, okay, well, here's where, here's where your investments will take you in 20 years. And I'm looking at that number. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's great. That looks good. He goes, yes, now let's adjust for inflation in 20 years. And here's how, say, here's how $500,000 will spend in 20 years. And all of a sudden, it's $250,000. You know, that's how far that money goes. And so that reinforces that idea of saving, not 10%, but saving 15%, saving as much as possible Mm -hmm. to take into consideration unexpected events, unplanned, and inflation being one of those. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into a few others too, but um, I guess the misconception is that math is money and that money is math, and it's not. It's not always going to be the same. Just because you have a dollar, it's not worth the same next year and the next year and the next year, even though it's still worth a dollar. If you have a $100 bill, that's great. It's not going to spend the same way in 10 years that it spends today. So as an example of that, I've got a a chart that I'm going to just plug a couple of numbers in just so you guys can see, uh, and we'll talk about it. So let's say you're saving $10,000 a year. And that's hilarious. <laughs> Hypothetically. Okay. <laughs> and this could be used at any number, and we can obviously do that individually. But uh, And let's say you're getting just a, a simple rate of return of 5%, which is, is not complicated. And let's say you're saving that for 30 years. You don't increase. You never have pay increases. You just save 10% every year for 30 years at 5%. Okay. Well, in 30 years, you're going to have $697,608. Let's round it up to 700 for simple math. Okay, so if you have $700,000 in 30 years, it's nice. If you have to, I'd like to have $700,000 at hand that I can use. Well, typically as people are saving this money, this is what they're expecting to live off of at retirement. So we're going to run a calculation on that too. But the whole point of saving money or investing money or doing anything with money is so you have that money later on. That's, that's the point. You need it. You want it. Let me rephrase it. You don't need it. Um, so $700,000 in the future. All right. We're not even taking into consideration that this was saved in, say, a qualified plan like 401ks or traditional IRAs that that haven't been taxed yet. So I'm not even putting tax into this equation. But we're just going to go with inflation. And I'm just going to put 2%. Okay. Well, in 30 years, you'll have $697,000, $700,000. And inflation makes it spend like $385,000. There's nothing you've done. There's no bad mistakes you've made. That's just that's just inflation. That's just what happens. So these are things that if you don't save, think about that. If you're not putting aside money and actually saying, I will actively do something to build up my money, what happens to the money you do have? What happens to all of those different factors? And that's just one. There, there are a lot of different eroding factors. One of the biggest and easiest ones to talk about that don't have to involve a chart is just think about technology and technological advancement. There, is it possible that in another few years, some new technology is going to come out that we've, we just can't live without? Yeah. For example, the laptop in my lap or the iPhones or the whatever, or, you know, for those of us in Nashville, 
a flying car because if they can come out with a flying car I'm in because I am so tired of traffic I, I don't care what it costs I will figure out a way to do it so you know these things happen and when that happens well the money that you were expecting to have going somewhere else is gone it's just been removed from where you were going to have it because now you have to have this other item so just saving this 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 15 percent is giving you the ability to keep up with these additional expenditures over time that's really why we go with the 15 percent um other examples uh planned obsolescence which goes hand in hand with technology uh we you know things start slowing down the computer isn't working as fast as it used to mm-hmm. or the phones don't work the way why is my phone going slow all of a sudden it's just two years old i guess i gotta get a new one okay well there's it again there's that extra cost that you start having to add and it starts eroding the money that you would have put elsewhere I feel like some of that technology stuff is advice that your the little bit of advice that your parents or your grandparents gave you. They they weren't dealing with that type of technological mm. things that we're dealing with now. Well, they still did, but it wasn't quite on the scale that we deal with it today. Right. You know, it, it's it's growing so. Was fast. your father, your grandfather, still using the rotary phone? Yeah, we were talking. Yeah, so my dad still had a rotary phone up until a few years ago, when the phone companies literally said, "Yeah, we we can't." That's saving money right there. Anymore. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things you said the other day, which kind of blew my mind, was you were like, we were talking about investing, and and this might be going off the rails a little bit, but it was just it was really interesting to me to think about. Um, there's no new money, like there's the same amount of money that's oh, out there. Right. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So. When, when you're putting money in, say, the stock market, people have the belief that, you know, I'm going to put money in the market and I'm going to get more money out of the market. No new money is really created from the market. What happens is you put money in and other people say, hey, that's a good idea. So they put money in and then eventually somebody takes it out. It's, it's a transference of wealth. It's really not new money. Is, new money is not created. It's just transferred. Uh, a great example is, uh, okay, everybody remember Bitcoin uh, going all crazy? Okay, when it started getting really, really high, and this will, this can sidetrack us into a whole other conversation, but <laughs> when Bitcoin went really, really high, the first thing I said was, all right, I'm going to start getting calls left and right of people wanting to, hey, should I get into Bitcoin? So it got up to, I think, $19,000 or something like that. It got really, really high. And then all of a sudden it dropped to, I think, eight. Well, everybody that got in and didn't take back out, that money went to the people that took it out. They were, oh, I lost money. No, somebody else took it. That's really what happens. It's, it's not new money, which, which I guess to sidetrack, but also to really go into that further is you, you can't, nobody ever went broke taking profit. The whole idea is, the, the oldest adage in the book is buy low, sell high. Now, this is good because this is like another myth and misconception. Right. Yeah. Well, that's reality. That's what should be done, but almost nobody does it. I, I almost never see anybody actually do that. They don't buy low and sell high. They buy high, then freak out when it goes low and take it out. And that's it's. It, so my job is to remove emotion from decision making and dollars, because emotion. Okay, how many decisions have we made in life that went perfectly because we based it on emotion? <laughs> right. None. So <laughs> it doesn't work. 
So the whole point is if we can get rid of emotion, you're going to be emotional, your money's involved, but if we can get rid of the idea of emotion and that formatting how you attack a problem and we just get to the logic of it, then, then things work more smoothly. But uh, people often, it's, it's called locking in your loss. If you take out when the market's low, that's it. You're done. You've locked in the loss that you've sustained because it's not coming back. You've now removed yourself from the market. So the idea would be in, in, in an ideal situation is if the market's low, you let it ride because eventually you hope that it's going to go back up. And as we know, markets fluctuate. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know that they have, they've always fluctuated. They're probably going to continue to fluctuate. So it's better to not buy in at the high point. And whenever you see everybody else getting into a craze and you haven't already been in, okay. You know, you may be able to get in and get lucky and pull back out and get a little bit more, but almost nobody ever does that. Nobody has the time to really focus on that. We, you know, everybody's living their lives. Everybody's, in, in this case, doing their gig or they, they, they're, they're out at their job, whether it's at a desk or wherever else. They've got to focus on dealing with family and dealing with everything else. They're not watching it all the time to be able to pull that money out at what they think is the appropriate time. Going back to a base idea of, okay, I'm earning this money. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I got some credit cards when I was in college. It was easy. I started accruing interest, and I find myself 5, 10, 20 years later with more debt than I can handle. Mm. And yet it just it seems normal. The average American spends 110% of their income. So in my mind, I'm going, hey, I'm just like everyone else. I mean, it's how do I deal with this? But And then you have the challenge of uh, – life becoming more expensive mm. and um, fluctuation of income and things like that. So at, a, at its base, where does one start to get to a point in their life when they can start investing in the market and doing some of these things that we're talking about? I know it comes down to savings, mm. but are there some creative ways that people can be saving? If you're living paycheck to paycheck – because you're not sure where your money is going? So the first step, the, the, truly the first step is to be aware of what you have. So you, you found that out when I, one of the main reasons I give somebody a questionnaire to fill out yeah. is because everybody has, it's, so you make different decisions with different people at different times under different circumstances in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much how you store what you've done. Oh, I did this at this time. Where did I put that? And I've got, I think I did this at such and such. Yeah. I don't know how to get back into that, but I think I need to find that. And that's, that's pretty normal because people do make these different decisions. It's, it's uncoordinated. Just things happening. It's, it's monetary decision-making yeah. uh, and that there are different ways of, of monetary decision-making and, and planning. Um, and it, starting off knowing what you have, where it is. And the simplest thing to do, I mean, everybody has a computer nowadays pretty much, or if you don't, you know somebody who does, make a spreadsheet. What are my base um, expenses? Right. What do I pay for power? What do I pay for water? It's amazing that almost nobody has a cash, it's called a cash flow analysis. Yeah. What? Where's my cash going? If you don't know where it's going, that's the problem. That's the first problem right there. Because oftentimes, 
we get out of control with what we get used to. And, and, I, and I'll say this often, people suffer from comfort. Yeah. We, it, comfort does not mean everything is great. It means you're used to it. And people suffer from that all the time. And think about any habits you have and how hard it is to change. It's, it's better to challenge yourself to do something different, to break out of that comfort zone, or at least see why you're comfortable or what you're comfortable with. And if you can do that, then you can start adjusting. Because people, when they actually have a spreadsheet, now you know where everything's going. You find money you didn't know you had, or you find things you're spending money on that you realize, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. Why am I doing that? I didn't realize I was still doing that. And that frees up that money. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the first things I do with people is to actually get them to see what they have because mm -hmm. if they don't know, I can't help because we need to really understand how things are functioning. And you talk about things, understanding what it is that you have. That includes assets. Correct. The opportunities for investment are almost unlimited. The places you can have money are almost unlimited. There is, there's no lack of opportunity to put money somewhere. It's, yeah. it's, that's not the problem. The problem is making the decisions that are going to coordinate with everything else you have so that it functions properly. Um, as far as where money is, I mean, as, as far as assets, when you said assets, it could be an investment, but I mean, your car is an yeah. asset. Yeah. It gets you from point A to point B. Uh, oddly enough, what do you think your largest asset is? My house? No. Your ability to provide an income. Right. You are the largest asset. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's something that people don't even consider. I almost never get anybody saying me. But that's the reality. And, and people need to realize, everybody needs to realize you are a business. If you're an individual, whether you are self-employed or you work behind a desk or you're a nurse or you're anything, you're, you're a business. You and your if you if you have a spouse, you and your spouse are a business, and you have to consider yourself that, and you have to operate as a business. Mm -hmm. That doesn't it doesn't mean you have to get all crazy with it, but what it means is you have to understand that you generate revenue, you have expenses, you want a profit, you need to know where cash goes. How many businesses stay in business that don't know where their money's going? <laughs> right, and the majority of businesses in the first three years go out of business because they aren't tracking things appropriately. They aren't paying attention to it. They're in the moment. They're living with the, oh, I've got this thing. I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with that. They're comfortable yeah. with what they've been dealing with, and they don't realize that they have to actually look at the big picture. But this is me in a nutshell. I'm, I'm putting myself out there for everyone. I mean, not knowing where our money was going, not seeing myself or my family as a business and I think one of the things that was difficult is realizing that I didn't know these things, but also it was enlightening to know that once I understood where my money was, where my assets were, where my expenses were going, then it was empowering. One thing I believe we all share is that our income fluctuates from month to month. That is the challenge of being self-employed is you have great months and you have slow months. And one thing I told Michael is in my household – when we have a slow month, we make it. We still pay our bills. We still have, and we're like, wow, this is great. When we have a great month, we still pay our bills, but I still don't have that extra income at the end of the month to show for it. I'm like, how did I make so much more money this month and still have so little in savings compared to that month that we behaved according 
to the amount of money that we were making and we were able to pay our bills. It's like, why can't we just keep that the same? And I think part of it has to do with just knowing where our money was going. Compounding interest affects people in multiple ways. The, the way that people typically understand it or focus on is or are marketed to, let me say, is let's say you have $100 and you put it in the market. Tomorrow, the market goes up by 50%. What do you have? $150. Right. Okay. So that next day, the market drops by 50%. What do you have? $75. Right. Almost everybody initially, because we already had this conversation, yes. almost everybody always says, oh, I get 100 No, it's not the same. Compounding affects you in the negative as much as it affects you in the positive. Yeah. So it's, it's being able to understand that these numbers, building and building, that's only half of it. If it goes the other way... It's, it's more drastic. So if you are in a market, if you are investing, you always gain from the lowest number and you always lose from the highest number. That's something to, to be aware of. It's not bad. It's not good. So I, I, I point all these things out merely to be – people need to be aware. You know, it, why make decisions if you don't have all the information? It's – I've used this example many times. It's, it's, if you, everybody's played Monopoly before. If you think back to the first time you've ever played Monopoly, imagine the person coming to you and go, hey, we're going to play this game. Uh, I'm not going to tell you all the rules, and um, we're going to use your, your real money. How many people would play that game? <laughs> Almost nobody. I've never, I've never had anybody go, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to do that. No, but that's literally what people are doing every single day in the real world. People don't know all the rules. They make decisions based on what they do know, and that's, that's good. You're, if, if you're, you get where you are based on decisions you've made, based on what you know. And that's yeah. that's fantastic. But there's a chance that there's a whole lot more out there that you don't know. So my job more than anything is to educate and just bring an understanding of how things actually function. Because we need to understand how money really functions if we're going to be dealing with that on a regular basis. And you deal with it every day. So why not understand it? Or if you don't have time to understand it, have somebody who understands it. Yeah working with you to do that. Right. I used this example the other day. If I was asked to produce a record, I would go in, I would think, okay, what do I need to make this happen? Uh, say a single singer-songwriter comes to me and said, I want to record this record. Um, okay, studio, get the engineer in place. I may play drums, I may not. I uh, need a bass player, I need a guitar player, because I own those things, but I'm not a guitar player. I'm not a bass player. I will get the experts in there to help get the job done. I could probably strum a few chords and pick my way through the bass, you know, around the bass, but it's not going to be the same. Mm. I need the, I need an expert, and the product is going to be so much better for it. Um, that's kind of my argument for seeking professional advice, professional help. I'm assuming everyone here is a musician, performer of some sort, uh, almost everybody, and has an understanding. And I'm sure you have people come up to you and say, I don't know how you do what you do. It's so great. It's so amazing. Like, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I feel like money is different because we are handling it every single day. Like, we all have a relationship with money. We all don't have a relationship with music or performing music we're doing these things so i feel like we're in a position oftentimes where people see what we do 
as unique and special and we have this talent that we do and it's like it's so it's incomprehensible it's it's just it's hard for them to understand and i with money it's different we're taught that you know very early on how to handle money how to spend money how how money works to a point and i feel like that gives us kind of this confidence to be like i know what i'm doing i know how to handle my money i know how to save it i know how to do these things but when it comes down to it there's so many myths and misconceptions there's so much uh, marketing that's there that it provides a lot of misconceptions on how we handle our money mm. another thing that was interesting in my experience with our meetings with you was when i was trying to get information about my insurance my homeowner's insurance my car insurance I'm sitting there with you, looking at the website, looking at State Farm's insurance, and and you're like, where is this information? I'm like, I don't know. And you're like, it's so hard to find. They don't want you to see some of this information. It's like looking at your credit card statement. It's kind of there, but it's kind of not. It gives you just enough information where you think you know what you're looking at, but they're not going to tell you everything. Something that everybody should know. Like I mentioned, everybody's a business. Yeah. So if we're going to all think like a business, that that insurance company or any insurance company or any company for that matter thinks the same way with these four basic rules of finance. And this is something that everybody should remember for all eternity. Four basic rules of finance. They want your money. <laughs> Just as you want somebody else's money, it's the same thing. They want it on a systematic and regular ongoing basis. They want to hang on to it for as long as possible. And when it's time for you to get it back, they want to give it to you in little itty-bitty chunks. So if you break that down, the first one's pretty obvious. If I'm going to start a business, let's say we get together and we start a bank, the drummer's bank. (laughs) What do we need? We need money. Okay, so we need to entice somebody to bring us the money, right? How do we get them to bring us money? Well, let's let's give them a little bit of money. Let's give them a small interest rate on their re- their money if they let us hang on to it. And we'll make it so that you can just auto-draft it. We'll just put it automatically in there. Your, your bills, your, your, your payments can come straight into the account. You don't even have to touch it. So now we've got money, and we've got it on a systematic and regular ongoing basis. And if the longer we hang on to it, the more money you're going to make, the more interest you're going to get. So just let us hang on to it for a long period of time. Okay, that sounds good. All right. Well, then we can maybe put a penalty on it. So that if you want it back, you can get it all back at one time in a big chunk. But if you get it back in a big chunk, we're, we're going to take a larger percentage from it. Oh, well, I don't want to do that then. Then in that case, I'll just take it in small payments because I don't get penalized. A great example of that would be taxes on a 401k, the ever-changing tax laws. When you take money out, it's going to be taxed. If you have that $700,000, again, we can do a quick calculation. If yeah. you want. This is fun. Yeah. Okay. This is fun for me. Let me rephrase it. I have to say, at some point when he's going through all my paperwork and I'm, I'm thinking, this has got to be brutal, man. Like you, you, <laughs> You're apologizing. You, You're like, I'm so you, sorry. I'm like, don't apologize. I you've like got to be regretting huh. doing this, but he's enjoying this. So that, that same calculation we did before, you had about $700,000. If it's in an account that has not been taxed yet. And by the way, do you guys think that when you retire, taxes are going to be higher or lower? Higher. Okay. Almost everybody says that. Here's the reality. I don't know. Nobody does. Nobody has a clue. Now, in uh, just, again, for, for note's sake, note-taking's sake, uh, the highest income tax has been 94%. Yeah. 
Think about that. I work and I get 6% of what I've earned. Okay. So now, and again, it, it depended on how it was calculated and what was going on, but that was the highest tax bracket. That's rough. We're now, the highest tax bracket now, does anybody know? It, it does depend. The highest bracket is 37%. That's actually a fairly low tax bracket. So we're in a fairly low tax environment. So which way is it probably going to go? There you go. Okay. So most people think it's going to go up. Again, we don't know. But if we think that way, why do people often lock their money up in something that's going to be taxed at a later date and they don't know what the tax is going to be and they think it's going to be higher? But that happens on a regular basis. And it's, again, it's not wrong. I'm not picking on any, any tool because understand, it's just a tool. A hammer is a fantastic tool if you've got a nail. If it's a screw, it's not the same thing. It's not going to work the same way. There's, there's a place and a purpose so you have to understand them and understand how your money flows to be able to use it. But okay, so if you've got money in something that has not been taxed yet, a tax deferred, a qualified plan, 401ks, things like that. Okay, you have $700,000. Well, if you were to take it all out at once, well, you'd be taxed at the highest tax bracket. Well, that $700,000 would be taxed $258,000. So if you were to take out that lump sum at one time, Boom, $258,000 is gone immediately. So now you have $439,000. And then when you take into account inflation, it spends like $242,000. So... Is it the same as a Roth IRA? No, Roth is... Roth, you put in money that's post-tax and it grows tax-free. Correct. There are still penalties attached to it of when you can take it out and when you can use it. Um, so yes, but it's different. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just a remix of everything to use music analogy. Everything's a remix. There's always something that's, it's the same thing that's been tweaked this way or that way. And then it's slightly different, but it's the same thing, but it's different. It's just all different versions of tools that you can use. It's a screwdriver versus a power screwdriver versus a, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. As we were talking about drumsticks the other day, it's the regular drumstick or the, the laminated ones. It's got the, the rubber coating mm -hmm. on the outside, which keeps me from flinging it across the room like a dummy whenever I play. Yeah, there's there's different, different uses for different tools at different times. Um, so, I mean, if, if you knew you were going to take out a lump sum of money and it was going to be taxed that much, would you take it out? No. No. You, you would hope not to have to. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. There's And that goes to need versus want. I would, if I, if I didn't Ooh. need to, I wouldn't. Yeah, that's a whole different conversation, need yeah. versus want. But so what that means is, what do you do? You take little bitty chunks. Why? Because it's not going to affect you at the same tax bracket. If you take it as small portions, you maybe you're going to be in a lower tax bracket. So less of it's going to get taxed. So it's, again, those four basic rules of finance. If I loved having this conversation with my wife. Because she is not focused on this stuff. She says, all right, you're good at this. You do your thing, whatever else. But we were watching TV the other day and a commercial came on and she went, ah, the four basic rules of finance. They want my money and they want it. I was like, ah, oh, this is beautiful. I love it. But you've got to remember this kind of stuff because this is important. If you start watching TV, you look at any commercial, look at any marketing to you. It's all trying to do that. You're trying to do that. So understand that that's really how you need to function is you want money. You want it on a systematic and regular ongoing basis. You want to hang on to it for as long as possible because who gets to use it? You do instead of somebody else. And when they want it back, well, you still want to use it for as long as possible. So you want to hang on to it as much as possible and give them little bits at a time. So that's, that's something that's really important to focus, focus on in the way you do things, which means 
it's redundant to say it, save. It's why it's important to save. Because the more you have, the less somebody else has. If you have a lot of debt, somebody else has your money. They're using it. And you don't get to use it. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. What do you think are some ways that people are wasting money, but they are not aware that they're wasting money? An example for me was when we were looking at car insurance and okay. a collision on my jalopy. <laughs> and you're thinking, why do you have this? What if you get into a fender bender and you get to $2,000 worth of damage? Are you going to report it? Probably not, because I don't want my insurance rates to, to go up. So why do you have this deductible for collision that you're not going to use? And that's that's a case-by-case basis on if you're a good driver, then yeah. that's, that's a concern. That was the first question you had. Are you a good driver? Yeah, right. I'm a good driver. Because if you're not a good driver, you probably want to care cover driver. as much insurance as possible. So you've <laughs> <laughs> got different drivers in here. Yeah, right. uh, so without getting – I can't get into the specifics because everybody is different. But the reality is you need to understand. And one of the first things we do – so understand, here's, here's the basic things that I focus on first with my clients – getting them to save 15%. And no, that's not an overnight thing because you're not used to it necessarily. You may not be able to right away, but it's what we start working towards. Then saving that 15% up to at least 50% annual income, liquid, accessible that you can touch because there are reasons for that. The first thing that people think of is, well, what if I lose my job? What if I don't have any income coming in? I need something to live off of. And if I could just interject here, we, we talked about emergency fund. We hear that term used a lot. And I say, well, what about an emergency fund? And you're like, look, if you're saving and you have this liquid, it's that's kind of your emergency fund. It's really not something that – I mean, I, I know that's a common thing that gets used. And, and Well, the 50%, the reason we have 50% liquid is, is emergencies do happen. But we're typically sold on the idea of fear. There's two things really if you look at marketing – there's two ways that people market to you, fear or sex. That's pretty much everything that, that's out there because it's the two things that get the most attention. We don't need to be such a fearful society. As If I walk outside, nothing is going to swoop down and take me, I hope. I am a small guy, so it, it could happen. I don't know. But it's unlikely. So we don't need to focus on fear all the time, but fear is a, it's a reasonable response. I want to have money set aside. Okay, well, but what about opportunity? Like I said, there's almost unlimited opportunities available to you to, to invest. It doesn't have to be the stock market. It doesn't have to be the housing market. It could be as simple as buying a, a piece of musical gear that you know you can turn around and make extra money on. It could be a racehorse. It doesn't matter. Un, it could be anything. There are things out there. But if you don't have the money liquid and the opportunity arises, well, how do you get the money? Well, maybe you go into debt. Yeah. Or maybe you have to take equity out of a house and that takes time. So you mm-hmm. file for a loan. You have to do something to get that money. And while you're doing that, the next person that has that money that is liquid comes in and goes, boop, and they've took it. Well, you just lost out on that opportunity. So having that money liquid. Those are the first couple things we start to focus on for obvious reasons. You need to be prepared. And then we focus on, as you just brought up a moment ago, protection. Why do we focus on protection before we get into savings and growth? Well, you already have assets. Why do you want to risk stuff before it's protected? 
that's traditionally how people do things. They say, okay, I'm going to get into the market and I'm going to start, I'm going to get money into the market and buy some stocks. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to do this. And they don't have savings. So they risk money before they have money available to protect them in case that money is lost because risk is a four-letter word that's synonymous with loss. You wouldn't fly on risk airlines. (laughs) (laughs) A.K.A. Delta. (laughs) Hey, could you use the castle analogy? Yeah. Okay, so this is something – I like this because it makes a good – it's a good description. If you think back to feudal times – Nobody took all their gold gold, gold and jewels and went out into the middle of a field and plunked it down and said, all right, let's build a castle. They didn't do that. What they did was the first thing they did was what? Dig a moat. They built a layer of protection. Then they built really, really thick stone walls. Then they put the gold inside. But we don't do that today. We think we've got all this protection. We think we've got it solved because we talked to somebody and they said, hey, I'm going to save you 15% on your car insurance or whatever else. And you get it and you're like, hey, cool, I'm protected. No, you save 15%. It doesn't mean you're protected. What do you have? What's your coverage? How does it work? Do you even know? Most people don't know how all of their insurance works. And if they don't know how it works, why are you paying for it? Yeah. And if, if you're paying for it and you don't know how it works, well, let's at least get it right. Because you have assets, we don't want them going away. Because oftentimes we find people are grossly underinsured. Hmm. The value of of what they have is not going to come back. What if you end up injuring somebody? Lawsuit is another great eroding factor nowadays. We're a fairly litigious society. You can say something to people and they'll sue you now, which is kind of crazy. Somebody might sue me for saying that. So (laughs) – but you have to think about these things. If you're not protected and somebody sues you, well, where's that money coming from? And a lot of times people say, well, I, I don't have anything. They can't take anything. Well, again, what's your largest asset? Yourself. Right. And your, work, your ability to work. That's right. You've heard of people garnishing your wages? Okay, that can happen. If your wages are getting garnished, do you want to work as hard? Because you're working now for somebody else. So there's all of these different factors that we have to make sure that people are, are – going through. It's not complicated. It's really not complicated and it's not hard. It's it's actually easy. If you've noticed as we've gone through it, once you have your stuff all in one place, how much better did you feel? Yeah, a lot better. Right. You came in and you're like, I feel good about this. Yeah. Because you now see what you have. You now know where it is. It's easily accessible. Mm-hmm. And as we've started moving forward, you start getting to understand how these things work together. First and foremost, you understand how they work individually. So we focus on the internal design of that, whatever it is you have to make sure it's done right. And then we focus on how they work together. How do they coordinate? I also was able to recognize kind of how fragile things could be. <laughs> if I was not able to work, if my wife was not able to work, dealing with uh, handling necessary expenses like things that were due, like debt and uh, mortgage and, and other mm-hmm. things like that. And then also having an understanding of how to protect work through um, liability and I mean um, disability disability insurance. So something that people need to consider if you're if you're a primary earner of income and if you've got a family or even if you don't I mean think about somebody who is single and has no family. If you become disabled, well, how are you paying bills? Okay, yeah. well you got social security disability. How long does it take to file for social security disability and get it? Many, many months. Many, many months. <laughs> it's on average about I think it's six hundred and something days at this point in time. Because this, this social system that's been enacted is, is being abused. 
So therefore, they turn you down because they're trying to weed out people who don't want it. Well, unfortunately, if you're not one that needs to be weeded out and you need it, what happens? Where do you get the money? What are you doing? So having, having things set up appropriately, it's, 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 it's daunting for people because they think there's all this money that's going to be going out that they're not going to have. But it's a whole lot more daunting to deal with something that does happen and you no longer have from that mm-hmm. point forward. Mm-hmm. Is there such thing as good debt? Yes. It depends on how you structure it. There are all kinds of good debts. Let's look at an example. I'll use one that's probably not the norm. Hmm. I buy a car. I have $20,000 cash. I can buy the car cash. I don't have to be in debt, right? Okay. You buy the car. How long does it take to save $20,000 back? It takes a while because now you're making payments to yourself. Okay. So let's say the interest rate on that car was 5%. Well, I had a large chunk of money already, $20,000. What if I could have taken that $20,000 and made 8% and I'm paying money. I'm making payments on a car, but I get to keep my money. I don't, I don't mind debt if things are structured appropriately. That's why I say everything, there's everything in the financial world and everything that touches your money is part of the financial world. It's just a tool. It's understanding processes and how it functions. I'm more interested in the process of how can we make things work? How can we get more out of it? And how can I keep my money? Kind of like taxes. I don't like taxes, oddly enough. Not many people do. I, I, but I would rather pay taxes at the end of the year than have them owe me money. Why? Because I got to keep my money for a longer period of time. Because I can... I believe, in my humble opinion, that I can do more with my money than the government does with my money. I have a feeling that I can handle the money better. I haven't had many people argue with me about that, but I don't know, I don't know why. Government or business. Or business. Yeah. yeah. So you just, can handle my money better than I can. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly, right. And as we work forward, then you can handle it equally well. Is, is this idea of reusing the dollar more than once come into play? Oh, yeah. So can you explain that? Okay. So an easy example of that. Well, first I'll tell you how that really functions. Again, the the use of the dollar. Think of a bank. When you put, let's use that $20,000 example. If I put $20,000 in my bank, is is it just sitting in a box? No. 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 So... The bank is doing things with it. It does not just sit there waiting for me to go, hey, I need my $20,000 back or I need five of it back. The bank uses that money. Bob down the street wants to buy a boat. It costs $20,000. He goes to the bank, gets a loan. They charge 8%. Okay, he takes that $20,000, buys the boat from Fred. Fred does what with the money? Puts it back in the bank. And then they do what with it? They loan it out again and they reuse it. Your, Your dollar is used on average seven times. Talking about compounding, think of that, that same dollar being reused multiple times. Okay, well, an easy example of that that people have that, that, that are pretty easy to deal with is you buy a piece of property. It builds equity. Okay, most people think I'm going to be so excited when my house is paid off. This kind of goes to the debt thing. Is it good debt or bad debt? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if your house is paid off, you now have money locked in bricks. How do you use it? You either sell it or you, you could rent it. Uh, you can take an equity line out on it. So ultimately, you have this use of equity in this property that 
you hope is appreciating as the retail, you know, the real estate market has been doing lately, which is good. Um, but that dollar was used to get a piece of property. You're using the piece of property. It's building equity. You can take that money out again at a point in the future to reuse while you're still in the house. And now you can use that dollar to do more. There are ways to do that. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are many, many multiple examples of that. There's all kinds of different things that we can do that will allow you to use the dollar more than once, which is the name of the game. The faster, the more often and faster your money is moving, the less likely somebody can grab it. And I, I don't... I mean it literally, but I also mean it in the form of all these eroding factors. If that dollar is in motion and is working for you, then it's building money and it's less likely to be eroded because it's gaining something for you as opposed to it losing its value. There are many different types of, of planning. Uh, I'll, I'll run down a, a list and these are the types of planning that I typically see. One is no planning. <laughs> it's it's just true. People come in, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know. I haven't cared. It is what it is. Okay, that's one. And you can do that. That's fine. Um, probably not the most efficient. Uh, occasional planning. Well, this year I decided to do X, Y, and Z. A few years ago, I had bought some stock. I haven't really looked at it. It's just random occasions I've done some stuff with my money. Um, three is needs-based planning. Um we're about to have a kid. We need to start saving some money. Uh, my child is getting towards college age. I need to save some money. My car just broke down. I need to do something with the money. I need to find the money. I need to use the money. Um, then there's individual financial plans. Individual financial planning will be using a specific tool or a group, a small pie chart group of specific tools uh, involving a large amount of calculation and a large uh, hope or drive towards a certain interest rate, you know, certain stocks, bonds, mutual funds, blah, blah, blah. This is, you know, an item or a group of items that somebody sells. I go talk to them. They provide that. And that's my plan. And then there's um, strategic process, which is what I do. There is no tool. I do not care about a specific tool. I care about process because there's a right place and a right time for any tool. There's also wrong places and wrong times. But if we understand the process of how things function, then we can plan appropriately. So pretty much everything is need-oriented that I see people involving themselves in or goal-oriented. I find this to be uh, a gross injustice to what can be done. And the reason being is as follows. If your goal is X or you need X and you could have achieved X times three and all you ever got was X, you missed out on the maximum potential that you could have had. So whenever somebody focuses on need and want or need and goal-oriented items, well, I find that to be just not, not as successful as it could be oftentimes because why don't we always look for the maximum? Why wouldn't you want the best possible? Why wouldn't you want the most you could possibly get, not just the goal or the need? Yeah. But I mean, when we talk about needs, uh, nobody should want to base decisions on needs. Think about need decisions. Think if you're in a situation where you need water. That's not good. That's not, a, I need water or I need this. That's not when you make the best decision. It's when you want something and you have the time and the confidence and the comfort to actually take time to research it and understand if it makes sense and look at logic. Emotion is less likely to be in a want decision if you actually take the time 
than in a need decision. Um, I use this example often, which is, um, uh, do you want your car to run well? Yes. Right. Especially if you're doing gigs or whatever else, if you're touring, whatever, if you have your, if you're going somewhere and your car breaks down and it's just toast, is that a problem? Yes. Right. Okay. Why is your financial world any different? Why don't you want your financial world running well? Because if it breaks down, you're in a problem. Mm-hmm. Think about that need situation now. If your car has broken down and you're in a need situation, I need a car, are you going to negotiate well? <laughs> are you going to think clearly and get the best possible situation? Probably not. But if you're in a good place and you want something, that's different. I, I want pizza today. Not I need some food now. That's yeah. a very different situation. But that's, that's why it's important to, to, to start with the basics and start with the foundations and have a proper process. Yeah. And which, which are the, 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 the common sense basics, which are save money, don't outspend. I could say it again and again, but I won't because I know it bores people. But it's, it's really that simple. But starting there and then building a process from there. We can get as complex as anybody wants, but why start complex and why start with risk? As we're all trying to learn more and understand the terminology and where our money goes and why it goes there and whether it's insurance or savings or investments, are there resources that people can tap into? What might you suggest people go to to find out more about getting a better understanding? I mean, we, we all know how to find videos and books and teachers on getting better at our craft. How was how does one go about learning more about managing their own money? The first step I would recommend is talk to a specialist. The reason being everybody's a specialist at something. You're yeah. a specialist at running your family and keeping things going. You're a specialist at doing your job, doing your craft well. That's why you do it. That's why you either enjoy it or why you earn a living for doing it or hopefully both. So that takes that is a whole lifetime of experience and energy and effort, which is why so many people let everything else kind of go to the wayside. Yeah. You can't be a specialist at everything. Yeah. I can't I'm not a specialist at brain surgery, and if I end up with a brain tumor, I am not going to operate on myself and I'm probably not going to let you do it. No offense. I'm going to find a specialist. <laughs> so, it's the same thing with money. If you're not sure that you're doing the best you possibly can, why not talk to a specialist that can help you out? That's what they do. Uh, that's literally what I do yeah. every day. Yeah. And I study it every day and it doesn't stop and it, because things change. So why not have somebody that's dealing with that? Just like taxes, dealing with a, a, an accountant that knows what you can write off, what you can do. What does this mean? Am I going to get taxed for this? Having somebody who knows that. But talk to a specialist. Yeah. Um, I, would, I prefer, I'm biased, non-fee-based planning. Um, because my job, in my opinion, is that, to make you money, not take your money. Um, there are fee-based planners that I'm sure do a very good job, and they would charge a fee. You go in, they give you advice based on whatever they see, and there are non-fee-based planners that, as we have worked through, we yeah. work through it first, yeah. see what's going on, and go from there. Yeah. And you enjoy doing this. I love it. You enjoy it's. it's I, I know, like, my kids look at me, and I'm – playing a paradiddle for like five minutes straight trying to get it right and and they're like that's not for me <laughs> i see what you're doing i'm like man you must really like this, this so is, yeah. so this ties in so i've played drums since i was 16 yeah i am far far from 16 at this point in time uh, 
only a few years ago, I'd say four years ago, a good buddy of mine who's a very good drummer said, do you ever practice your rudiments? And I went, no. He's like, did you ever? I was like, no. He's like, just do some paradiddles and flamadiddles. And he started just putting me on a little regimen to do these things. I got, oh, I, just like in finances, we can get pretty far in life and be okay. I was okay as a drummer. But from doing that appropriately, just from coming back to the basics and having somebody say, look, you need to focus on this. This is where you're weak. This is where you're strong. Build off of this. Let's fix that. I improved exponentially just from that, that paradiddle, just from that basic practice. It's, it is really as simple as going back to the basics. And it's okay if you haven't done it for years. You can kind of go backwards and go, okay, here's where I need to fix some stuff. And then all of a sudden, boom. And, and, and the, like the advice that you give me, I mean, it, it just, it probably seems so simple to you, but it's an epiphany for me. It's great. And I feel like I've made a lot of progress with this stuff. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd love to be able to have this microphone to, to anybody that has a question, a comment, um, a subject. Yeah. Yeah. Can we pass it around? Um, does anybody have anything they want to add? There you go. Nice job. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, drum tech. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions or anything they want to bring up? Can you? You talked about epiphanies, and I think the biggest epiphany that I got was how we are our biggest asset as far as being able to make more money and turning money into more money. And I, I hope I'm not the only one that like I'd really like to have a comfortable life doing what I'm doing and loving what I'm doing and making that happen. So, how? do as a, you know as if, if we're running our own business and we're entrepreneurs and we're setting our own service business with our rated fees and we're collaborating with other people and if, if I'm trying to see it see it that way so as a business service business right how do where's the line between I guess it's a twofold question one how do you make investments into your business to make more money and expand that business and also musically it's like, well, at what point do you become like really knowledgeable, but also, well, I don't want to become a jack of all trades because then I won't get any work. And that's that for me. That's kind of a, a line that. How do I base those two? And how does the money come involved? I don't know if that makes any sense at all. I think I've got it. Okay. I think. So we'll go try. We'll find out. Great. If not, I'm going to go off on some weird tangent and just wave, just wave me off and ring me. Great. Back. Great. So, <laughs> as, as far as operating a business, uh, I don't know, this is kind of tricky. So this is a pretty in-depth one. And, and I'd really have to see how the business is run. This is, this is where an individual process for every individual person is a little bit different. But it depends on how it's run and what you're trying to accomplish. If you don't want to be a jack-of-all-trades, that means you have to consider several things. One, you need to figure out how much you're willing to outsource. You need to figure out how you can afford to outsource it and what expense that's going to add. You can talk to people to see what kind of write-offs you have from that, how, it, how you can get into setting up um, pay, how you can look at how that's structured. So it really depends on what you want to do and how much you're willing to do and, and to what level you're generating revenue and how much of that can go to pay somebody else. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's something that would re- – there's a business plan in there and there's some business modeling you need to sit down and really work through and say, this is what I'm focused on. This is what it generates. This is what if I bring somebody else in, this is what they would generate. Do, does it pay for itself? Will it pay for itself over a period of time? Okay, so I, does that answer that part of it? Yes. Okay. That was, I think, the second question. Can you kind of 
go back with what um, I haven't answered, maybe. How to increase your earning potential. If, if we're our biggest asset, how do we do that as musicians? How do we do that? How do you do that? <laughs> I know that's the, the golden question, but... It, it, that's, that's one that is above and beyond, I think, my capability because it does depend on... It, it, that's the professional world when it comes to, to music or anything. It's right place, right time, right connections, getting out there in front of people, making, making those connections. Um, so that's an individual per person. It is. Self-marketing. Marketing is big. I am not a fan of marketing, but marketing is big. I, I just, you know, the, marketing has its high points. Marketing is getting, the whole reason for marketing is to get somebody's money or to get them to get you into some, some situation where you're going to generate more money. So if you're the marketer, then it should benefit you. So you have to look at what's going to benefit you and what area that is. That's about the best generic advice I can really give at this point in time without really seeing a specific situation. But when you are your own business, it's about getting out there and just finding the right connections. And that sometimes takes a long time and then one day it hits. Uh, the other thing is, and, and this is something that, that I do focus a lot with people who have businesses, is, is, is understand you can only trade so much time for money. You only have so much time. Yeah, 24 hours a day, and some of that's going to be doing what you're doing. Some of it's going to be doing the other parts that involve uh, living, uh, eating, sleeping. So you have so much that you can put out there to get return. Well, at some point, this is where it comes into growing as a business and multiplying yourself, having other people doing what you're doing, bringing in revenue. You can trade other people's time for money. That's where when you're talking about, you know, adding other people or, or growing as a business, uh, if you don't want to be a jack of all trades, having somebody else generating revenue as well, cloning yourself, so to speak. But yeah, building on top of it with other people, trade their time for your money. And that's what a business does. The bigger the business, the more people it's trading their time for the business's money. I think being 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 successful in the performing arts has has always been a mystery. I, I as as many interviews as I've had the opportunity to do and 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 listen to other podcasts and other things like that, I always learn new things. And everyone's story is unique. Everyone's situation is different. And I can pull a little thing from everyone's story, and and it might relate to me. It, it might not. It's so unique. It's unlike any other business where there's. You know, you can get a degree in this business and there's a step-by-step -step process and this person will hire you and then your boss recommends you for that. It's, it's just, it doesn't work that way. It's, you got to throw everything at the wall and it just seems like some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. It's art and art is a whole lot harder to categorize and monetize mm -hmm. specifically. I mean, think about some paintings you've seen and you go, why in the world are they charging that much for that painting? I don't get it. And then others you're like, okay, I get that. It's the same thing with, with – with, I mean music is art. It's the same thing. You, you generate something that you get enough interest in, you can charge a whole lot more for it. Look at the difference in ticket prices for certain people versus others. So, Yeah. It's, it's, that's, it's, it's a tricky field, and I admire everybody who does it professionally because that is – and puts all their time into it because it is tricky. Because like I said, I play drums, but you notice I'm not doing that professionally because that was not for me. So I, I admire it. 
One last thing I wanted to say about that jack of all trades. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but years ago, before I moved to Nashville, I was at a, a clinic with Kenny Arnoff, and uh, he said something that just blew my mind. He, he was, you know, I was asked him. It's like, man, I'm, I'm learning all these different styles of music and and doing all these things, and I feel like I'm a jack of all trades and master of nothing. I'm not. I'm not really getting. He goes, well, let me tell you. He said, you can have ten C minus grooves, or you're going to have three A plus grooves. I do like two or three things really good, and I've made a living out of it. And we all know who Kenny Aronoff is. And it's kind of like, that blew my mind. And so I'm thinking, okay, I'm getting ready to move to this crazy competitive music town. What is it that I love to do that I will spend a lot of time in the practice room working on, fine-tuning, and what kind of music do I want to play? And I focused on that. Mm. And it's kept me busy for the last 20 years, not always as much as I'd like. But that conversation was just, that helped me understand the jack of all trades and the master of none mm. kind of thing. Now, we all know freaks out there that do everything, and uh, they can go away. <laughs> Ernie, you got a question? Yeah, um, so you, you talked about that, that, that on average, uh, inflation is about 2% a year, is that what you're saying? That mm. the, the government... So, that's, that's typically what they've used. That's I think they've typically raised what they use in the last year or so. All right, but you, and it fluctuates. Yeah. But just going based on two or three percent, how would you like com- combat that as far as saving money? I mean, do you look for high interest that pay more than two per three percent per year, or you just buy now because? You'll get more for your money now than you will 30 years from now. Yeah. <laughs> well, the initial thing is if you're saving, if you're saving that 15 percent, mm-hmm. let, let's consider. Let's say there's five different eroding factors that, on average, erode your money by about three percent each. Mm-hmm. If you're saving 15 percent each year, you're covering just that expense alone. Does that make sense? The whole reason for saving 15 percent is not even necessarily to do anything with it. Now, we can do things with it, but first and foremost, if you're saving this 15%, you're building this pile of money that you have that's going to give you more to counteract inflation and what it does. You're giving yourself more because over time, if your dollar, if you look at a flat line, if you draw a flat line across a page, your dollar is not doing that. Your dollar is going down. It's curving down over time, Mm -hmm. the negative effects of compounding. Well, if you're saving money and you're saving 15%, you're adding this money because your goal is each year you're hoping to earn more money, right? The goal is not to make the same amount of money every single year. So if you're saving 15% of your earnings, we're also expecting that you're looking and moving forwards toward increasing income. Um, A lot of stable – like a lot of office jobs will have uh, COLA, cost of living adjustments, which is a a raise each year that's normally 2 to 3% somewhere along. It goes away from time to time depending upon our economy. But that alone, if you're getting that 3% raise each year, well, now you're taking 15% of what you're earning, and that money's going aside. So you're counteracting that downward curve by saving that extra money, and it's keeping that line more stable, more flat. This isn't – the saving the 15% isn't an investment advice piece. It's just something you should be doing because if you don't, your money is going to go less far. Does that answer it? Uh, yeah, sort of. I was just uh, thinking about like interest rates, like because banks. If you put your money into a bank, you're not getting three percent interest rate. That would be incredible if you did, right? Well, right now, yeah. But well, think so, about that. So that's what's funny is if you actually look back to the uh, the 80s, um, mortgage rates were what 12 percent, 14 percent. But what were rate of return at banks? Six, 
eight annuities are up there. So I don't mind if the rates are really high. I don't care if a mortgage rate's going to be, if mortgage rates start rising and get really, really high, and if other things start getting really, really high, really, really high, if I've already saved money and I've done things appropriately, well, now I have money that I get to use to make money with. So I don't mind it. But if I haven't saved the money and it gets really, really high, then I'm in trouble. Right. Oh, I see. Which is why. So, no, right now, banks are not going to give you a ton of a rate of return. But so think about the stock market. Do you feel like you'd get a good rate of return in the stock market if you left the money in there? Uh, I guess it depends. <laughs> Me personally, I've lost $20,000 in the stock market, so no. Okay. No, I have not. <laughs> well, it, it does. But somebody has done better than me. That's right. Somebody's got my $20,000, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if we look at the stock market, so this is pretty funny. I don't know if – Warren Buffett did a, did a report. We all pretty much know who Warren Buffett is. Uh, he had a study done from 1899 to 1999 of what the market did. And I wish I had the, the actual numbers of what the difference was. It was like in 1899, the index was like 2,400. And in 1999, it was like 18,000, which seems like a big jump. Well, the average rate of return over that 100-year period of time from 1899 to 1999, you want to take a guess as what it might have been? Oh, I already know. Oh. <laughs> 4%? I like this. Everybody's shooting low. It's 5.3%. So if, if we're beating 5.3%, that's not bad. You're beating the market for a 100-year period of time. Nobody's going to keep their money in the market for 100 years. We understand that. Or at least your, it may be your money for 100 years. Somebody else is going to get it at that point in time if you're leaving it. But it depends on when you take your money out or when you're thinking of taking it out. And this is very important. People don't focus on exit strategies. When do you get out of something? Everybody knows how to get into stuff. I joke about it all the time. As, as, a, as a boy growing up, I was really, really good at getting into stuff, as I think most guys will agree. We can get into some stuff. That's not the problem. It's the getting out of it that's a problem. We never think about, hmm, if I do this, how can I get back out of it if I'm going to get in trouble? Nobody thought about it. It's like, uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. Well, it's the same thing in finances. We need to have an exit strategy. Why would you not know how to get out of something before you get into it? So that's, that's part of a process of understanding and, and setting yourself up to be able to do both ends of that. I focus on exit before I ever enter into anything. I want to know how I can get out. But in the cases where people had not set up an exit strategy and did not know what to do, think about 2007, 2008, people who were retiring. That was brutal. There were people that came to us that, were, that had, you know, they had their 401k, and these 401ks a lot of times have the um, – if you click on it, you know, what's your what's your retirement age based on what your ideal income is? And their retirement age was 67. And that year, it went up to 75, 76, wow. 78. And people were freaking out. So that's not the time you exit, right? Mm -hmm. The market's low, so you don't. So well, if that was your only pool of money, if you haven't created a strategy to have additional pools of liquidity and strength and growth, well, what do you do? Well, you just keep working. But if you have additional pools that you can pull from and you let the market create rise again and you could pull money from somewhere else to have income, then you could still retire. It's all about having things set up appropriately. I went way off track, but I hope that gave you a, some indication. It, oh, it, yeah, de yeah. it depends. <laughs> there are ways to get high rates of return. It's not that complicated and it's not always the, the, the traditional stock market. It can be. 
there's all kinds of things. Again, there's there's opportunities to do all kinds of stuff. And speaking of exit strategy, Paul Simon said, getting into the music business is hard. Getting out of the music business is even harder. So it's, I believe that. I actually have something I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about. And this is something that uh, I learned a lot from you and, and our meetings working together. Can you talk a little bit more for everybody here about protecting your assets? Sure. So insurances and things like that. Yeah. Um, well, well, actually, what I'll do is I'll pull this up. I'll pull up an example. So one of the reasons we focus on protection first, again, you have assets already. So we need to make sure that they're covered appropriately. But not, oops, not only that, if you're protected appropriately, it unlocks other assets. There's the potential to unlock other assets that you wouldn't normally be able to use. So, um, let me pull up the calculator here. We'll use that same $7,000. This is called a person A, person B, for those who can see it. Um, person A has that $700,000. And let's say they're earning what's called the safe rate. Has anybody heard of the safe rate before? If you Google safe rate, it'll pop up. So traditional planning teaches us that 4% is a quote-unquote safe rate that you should be able to expect to earn 4% on your money without it being in a high-risk situation. And that means that if you leave that money under management, you should be able to spend that 4%. Now, why would people want to earn the 4% and spend the 4% and no more? Well, the number one reason, what do we all not want to do when we're old? Run out of money. That is the number one fear of older folks when they come and see me is a fear of running out of money. Well, what if I've spent too much? I don't know how much I can spend because I don't know how long I'm going to live. What am I going to do? So they spend very, very little. And if you think about that, it's kind of it's, it's kind of interesting. When I ask people, do you want to have less income at retirement, the same income you're used to, or more? Almost everybody tells me, oh, I could live off of less. I'm like, well, that's not what I ask. How much do you want? <laughs> uh, I, I'm probably going to have to live off of less. And I start getting into, why? Why, why is that? I find that interesting. So we focus on trying to have more because who doesn't want more? Are you more likely to need more money when you're old? Yeah. Right. So so 4% is the quote-unquote safe rule. So we're going to use that 4%. So person A has $700,000 at 4%. Person B, same, four, same thing, $700,000 at 4%. Okay. Um, let's say they retire at age 67 and they live to age... 87, 20 years. Okay. So don't know what taxes are going to be in the future. We'll just say 25%. Well, at that amount of money, we'll say, actually, we'll say 15%. Low income because you're pulling only the 4%. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to click a few buttons here. You're going to see the bottom line, the gross withdrawal that they can take, the percentage of tax, which is 15%, and their net income. So if we were to chart this out, person A and person B in this situation, so far as I've set it up, are exactly the same. So person A has $700,000 under management, earning 4%. So they spend 4% for their income. All right, that's $28,000 gross withdrawal. They're taxed 15%, and their annual tax would be 4200 based on that. So they actually have an income of 23800 And they live off of that because they don't know when they're not going to have it, because they don't know if the market does take a big drop 
that 4% actually doesn't happen, so they want to make sure it's there. What if they have medical emergencies as they're older? What if they need long-term care, uh, additional coverage? Uh, they probably have children that they want to leave some money to if they like them. <laughs> uh, so person B, same exact thing. But if, if you're insured appropriately, if you do things correctly, what we teach people to do is if we create a strategic design that allows you to actually – create what's called a pay down, meaning get to use your income and still be able to leave money behind. That changes things. That $700,000 for person B, they gross withdrawal $49,896 of that seven that $700,000. Percentage of tax you'll notice is going down each year, 8.42%, 8.15, 7.88 as it goes down. Taxes are decreasing over time. Net income instead of the 23845 692, 696, that's a 92% increase in income. If you set up appropriately, if you're insured correctly, and in this example, we can just say, for example, if you have life insurance, you know is going to come in that's going to create a tax-free asset in the future that you can leave to somebody. Well, that means you don't have to save that $700,000 necessarily. You also have additional pools of liquidity that we can create in other areas that allow you to pool money and pull money to, to do more with. So you can actually spend more of your money without fear of money not being there and have a better income throughout your life. This is very generic and it's just one example, but insuring yourself does allow you to do more. But uh, go ahead. I think you're going to ask something else. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to get into it, but can you go into a little bit more uh, on the difference between those life insurance policies and and why that makes such a difference in the annual income. Okay. Well, depending upon the case, and in this case, let's say we used permanent life insurance. There's there's multiple types of life insurance. There's term insurance, which is for a period of time. There's universal and variable life, which I'm not even going to get into right now. It's unnecessary. And permanent. Well, just by definition, how long is term for? Just a period of time. Okay. At some point it goes away. How, how long is permanent for? That is, it's there. That's right. So at some point we know, what's the one thing we all know is going to happen? At some point we're going to die. Unless there's some serious technological change. <laughs> He's like, no. <laughs> I, we got the Highlander in here. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, <laughs> um, so if we plan appropriately, we can, in some situations, we can look at using a permanent policy, which can create a, a cash value within it that you can access. So you have liquid cash within it. We guarantee that is at some point or another, it's going to come in, which means that if it's going to come in, let's say you have a $400,000 house. Well, in retirement, if you want to spend that $400,000, what was the whole point of creating that asset? Well, to use it, right? Well, if you want to spend the $400,000, that means you're not going to leave it behind to somebody because you've spent it. Well, how do you spend it? You sell it, which means you're still gonna to have to find another place, which means you're gonna to have to pay for another place. Or, you can do reverse mortgage. It unlocks the ability to use a reverse mortgage, which allows you to have additional tax-free income because you know that if you do the reverse mortgage and at some point when you decease, you've got a tax-free asset that comes in, it pays off the reverse mortgage and leaves money for whoever you want. Or you can spend that money too. There's ways to spend that while you're alive. But it's it's an asset. Permanent life insurance is, is the largest tax-free asset that you can buy. So that is an example of one thing you can do. And it's, it depends on the situation, but that's a, a useful tool. It is a tool. 
it locks it unlocks a lot of assets in time in certain situations did you have an, a question yeah sure yeah yeah cool i just want to say thank you for for uh doing this michael matthew this is great um find it very uh helpful and informative um awesome. thank you my name is Ryan Tremblay, and I'm a husband and father of triplets, uh, four boy, uh, three boys who are four years old. And I'm a full-time musician. I'm a Christian recording artist, but I'm also a drummer and percussionist. And um, I'm living in Rhode Island right now, and I'm, I'm out here this week because I'm interested in relocating the family to Nashville, Tennessee. I have found that I can teach and I can play in Rhode Island, and um, I've been told even that I can make a really good living there. But the issue that I'm having is that I want to be, and it's not an issue, it's actually, I think, a really healthy, positive thing. I want to be around the best, some of the best players in the world and up my game and, and be a part of the beautiful culture that's here in Nashville. And and um, I love to do uh, touring work, recording work, and, and all that good stuff and be able to like um, have have a band, like musicians from this area. Uh, it's been good in Rhode Island. I'm also, you know, a band leader in addition to a sideman. It's been good in Rhode Island um, working with musicians there, but just the pool of players in Nashville, right? It's just a land of opportunity. So I have two questions. One is, um, uh, do do you uh, service people who are, like, if I'm in Rhode Island, are you able to help my wife and I sort of get a game plan together, uh, even though we're not here in Nashville? Oh, yes. Uh, we have so we have off, so we have an office here in Music Row and okay. we have an office in West Palm Beach, Florida, um, but we have clients all around the country. That's not a problem. Okay, awesome. I have a, I have a, actually I have a client in Djibouti, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's not a problem at all. That's awesome. And then uh, I guess the second question is just: Do you have any advice for me? I've heard that it's good to try to with a move like this to raise or not raise <laughs> crowdfunding but uh um <laughs> there you go hey crowdfund- it's a resource if people are willing to pay why not you think about it. we can get everybody to give every everybody to give me one dollar everybody uh, yes everybody. i'm all right with that <laughs> yeah um but I've been told that it's good to save, yeah, five to ten thousand dollars in making a a move like this in a transition. Just as even that's, I think, when you're considering moving without a family, mm-hmm. maybe never mind with a family. Just as a as a single musician trying to sort of make it um, start over in a, in a scene. Um, do you have any other advice uh, uh, for me, Michael, uh, with um, with relocating the family into this area from a financial? perspective uh we were thinking about like 2020 so the summer of 2020 that gives us i don't know how many months um but uh any sort of things that we could be doing to make this transition clean and as as uh uh uh, grace-filled as possible (laughs) from a financial perspective um can can i add something before you start i think that you're kind of doing it now you're visiting you're taking time Mm -hmm. i think also technology allows you to understand the scene meet people we know people that have auditioned they've flown into town they've done auditions they've done it over skype um our buddy who plays with Marin morris now did it through a video and got the gig christian and i think there's my point is i have friends we all know people that move to town with a gig you know we don't talk a lot about that but that does happen from time to time so that might be one financial strategy. Maybe it might be plan A, or plan A is to save and take Michael's advice here. But plan B might be, well, what if I can just circumnavigate that whole thing and already have a gig mm-hmm. waiting to go, whatever it is. 
Sure. Mm -hmm. Sorry. That's great. No, Thank that's you. Great. Um, I think. I think everybody in this room would probably be able to give you some good advice from their experiences around the town and everything else. Uh, Don't move. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny. I, 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 for years, I was telling everybody in my family and all my friends, you need to move to Nashville. And now as we've grown so big and we're growing so fast, I keep telling them, stay away. But no, no Nashville is wonderful. It, it, it's, it, there's a, the, music, uh, the music community here is fantastic. Mm. Um, you've got a wonderful group of resources right here. I'm sure everybody here would be able to give you some advice and, and talk with you about that. Um, but the number one thing I would say is make connections and get ideas from everybody, from their experiences of where to live. I don't have kids. I can't tell you anything as far as what part of town would be best as far as schools. I can sure. give you some ideas, but as far as financial, it really is going to depend on me seeing what you have, how it's going, where it, where everything is now to structure it. And one of the reasons I can't, and, and, and everything I've said tonight is not to be taken as specific advice for any one thing, and I can't give specific advice, is because I, I focus on macroeconomic strategic design. And what that means is I have to take everything into account. Mm -hmm. Why would I make a decision based on one thing if I don't know how it's going to affect everything else? So I think that's very important to be able to see how one decision financially or one decision in any area is going to affect everything else. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to dig into that with you and help you out. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, go ahead and get a Kickstarter page going or a crowdfunding <laughs> page or something like that. It can't hurt. I mean, yeah. honestly, if, if you've got fans say hey we're moving we, we we'd love to have any assistance we can um, sure I, I can get you connected with my church and they can give you some ideas because they deal with a lot of music on, on their ends and a lot of professional musicians um as far as that goes but it, it's going to really be a individual basis i'd have to see sure well thank you thank you that's helpful yeah. and, and if you come welcome to nashville it's awesome <laughs> place. i think this uh, the information is is easily accessible and it just it fills in all the dot it makes the picture clear the more you understand, the more you learn. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're going to wrap up. I think this has been great. Michael, I appreciate your time so much. My pleasure. Um, it's been great. Can we just give a round of applause to Michael? Um, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for coming out. I really appreciate this. And, and, and hopefully I've given given some advice, or, or not advice, but some ideas, something, that, some things to think about. Um, I, I just want to say sincere thanks to everybody that's come out. It, it means a lot um, that you all take time to, to do this. And um, if you haven't listened to the podcast or, or check it out, um, but just your uh, input and your friendship, it just means a lot. And I appreciate you all being here. Thanks for being here. And thanks, John Hall, for helping to organize all this. Uh, but that's about it. Thanks, man. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Super sweet. So there you have it, our episode on personal finance. I mentioned this to John Hall some months back that this is something that I really wanted to do. Uh, I felt like it was a little self-serving as I knew I needed to get my financial shit together. And after a meeting or two with Michael, I thought, wow, this is going to be great. I'm super excited. I'm so happy to share this information with you. It was a lot of fun to do it live, and it was a lot of fun to see some familiar faces and to meet some new people. I thank all of you for coming out, and uh, again, if you want to reach Michael and you have any questions or want to discuss any of this stuff with him, I highly encourage you to do so. You can find his contact information in the show notes. 
Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Andres Forero. He's the original drummer for the Broadway production of Hamilton and still is in the chair. We thank you all for listening and continuing to spread the word about this podcast and all your comments on iTunes and YouTube and just participating with us in this ongoing conversation. Thanks so much. Hope to see you around. Bye-bye.